If you have your Bibles, let's open to the beginning, Genesis chapter 1. Verses 26 through verse 28. If you wouldn't mind standing for the reading of God's word. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Let's pray. Father, we come to this time in our service to address a very serious matter that has laid grips on our culture. But yet may be affecting someone in this room. Lord, I pray that you would help me tonight to communicate your great compassion for people and your standard of truth that you expect us to live by for those who are your followers. I pray tonight that you would be honored, that your spirit would speak through me to those who are here. Lord, that you might minister. Lord, if there's anything that's standing in the way of me communicating as a servant of yours or your people hearing from you tonight, would you pardon our sins and would you remove any barrier that might stand in the way? We desire to hear from you tonight. May your name be honored and lifted high. May your people be edified. We ask these things in the name of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. I want to begin tonight by first of all expressing a or expressing my gratitude for those who have prayed for me and sent me information as I prepared uh, for this message this week. Tonight we're dealing with an extremely complex topic. And in light of that, I want to state up front that I will not be able to address all the aspects of this issue, which I encountered in my reading and research. I've done my best to become acquainted, at least in the time that was provided me from the cultural standpoint, the mental health standpoint, and the biblical perspective with this specific topic. Tonight, I hope to do the best that I can to talk to you in the time that we have together. My hope, my desire today is to strike a balance between love and truth. I do think that the subject that we have brought to be our final topic in this series as the last message on Scripture Speaks to Society is appropriate because in one way or another, 
every topic that we have touched on in this series comes to bear on this specific topic. The way that I want to try to approach the topic tonight is in three movements. First, I want to take a brief survey of the current culture in which we live related to this topic. Then I want to follow that by looking at some of what the Bible teaches and points us in the direction of, though that will not be exhaustive and not all the arguments will be presented. And then at the end, consider some, not all, of the different ways that the church might think about formulating responses to this particular topic. Let me state up front that the gay, lesbian, and bisexual issue is not identical to the trans issue. There are some differences that make this issue an uh, issue of its own altogether. And so tonight we want to focus on the trans community issue. Now, as most likely most of you are aware that the gender identity and trans movement is actively in the process of converting American minds, laws, institutions, and even healthcare. We see examples in the media. The March-April 2021 edition of Time magazine featured for the first time a transgender man on the cover. The picture is of the now male in appearance Elliot Page, who was a former female actress, Ellen Page. Sports Illustrated has followed suit, and in July of this year, they will release an issue which will, for the first time, feature a transgender woman by the name of Lena Bloom, as reported by CNN. Not to mention all the YouTube channels, social media outlets, supportive news stations, and newspapers who are seeking to affirm the gender identity and trans movement. Not only do we see examples in the media, but we also see examples in our government and in our laws. The issue has come to the fore again with President Biden's appointment of Dr. Rachel Levine, whom we know well, a transgender woman from Pennsylvania to serve as the Assistant Secretary for Health. As to the law, right now, the U.S. Senate is debating the passing of the 2021 Equality Act, which was passed by the House of Representatives that would amend the 1964 Civil Rights Act to explicitly prevent discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity, but also expand it to, co to cover other areas that were not previously covered and trump religious liberty. We see not examples just only in media and in our governmental laws, but we see it in our educational systems as well. California has led the way in making gender identity a mandatory part of every child's education. The focus of the education has shifted from being about protection from those who would be considered part of the trans community to protect them from being bullied, to a stance of indoctrination to embrace varying gender identities. Schools, as well as places of employment, now use the gender unicorn or the gender identity gingerbread person to educate children 
about various gender identities. Other states like New York, New Jersey, Colorado, Illinois, Northern Virginia, and Oregon have used California as their model for education on this matter and have seek, sought to institute similar changes in their educational system. We see examples in the media, we see examples in government and laws, we see examples in the educational system, and we see examples in the medical field. In her book, Abigail Schreier writes, the American Medical Association, the American College of Physicians, the American Academy of Pediatrics, the American Psychology Association, the Pediatric Endocrine Society, have all endorsed gender-affirming care as the standard for treating patients who self-identify as transgender or self-diagnose as gender dysphoric. The gender identity and trans movement is sweeping our nation. You might ask, what spurred on the gender identity and trans movement? Many who have researched the issue have pointed to something that came out in June 2015. If you remember, there was the famed Vanity Fair cover of Olympian Bruce Jenner transition to Caitlyn Jenner. And they view this as the tipping point for America as it relates to this issue. In an uh, interview with Caitlyn Jenner about the transition from the male to female, Caitlin had to say this. I don't know if it's bravery or survival. It's just something that I had to do. I just had to do. It was a lot of conversations with my family and with my pastor. I'm a person of faith, and I just got to the point and the one last one I had to get over, I, I, I just had to have my conversation with God. And I got to the point where I said, you know what? Maybe this is the reason God put me on earth at this point in time. Andrew Walker of the ERLC believes relativism, the decline of Christianity in the West, radical individualism, the sexual revolution, and a revitalized form of Gnosticism have also contributed to us moving to this cultural moment in America, let alone the West. See, based on current events, it appears that our culture that we live in right now has shifted to a gender-affirming culture. Now, sadly, with this movement have come its activists who, in the name of defending those who they believe have been oppressed by society, seek to free them from oppression by intimidating and bullying others that appear to express a different view, sometimes even causing them to lose their very form of employment. Now, after hearing all that, it's very easy as a disciple of Jesus Christ to become so emotionally wrapped up in trying to figure out 
how to swim against the cultural current that seems to be quickly washing away the beauty of womanhood and the strength of manhood, all the while eroding the very foundations of society, the family, that we might lose sight of the people involved, whom God loves and for whom Christ died and was raised. In his book just released this year, just last month or so, on transgender identities, Dr. Preston Sprinkle opens with the following story about a friend of his named Leslie. Leslie was born a female. However, Leslie recalled at a young age personally feeling and playing like a boy. Leslie also remembered having a love for Jesus as a child that attended the nearby church. As Leslie grew, the struggle intensified, which made it harder to fit in a youth group. While girls were engaged in activities that would associate with becoming a woman, like wearing makeup, styling their hair, and talking about boys, Leslie expressed no interest. Like most kids that struggle with their gender identity, Leslie wrestled alone. To make matters worse, from Leslie's perspective, no one seemed to care. And when isolation met depression, suicidal thoughts soon followed. Finally, Leslie mustered up enough inner strength to ask the church's pastor for help. In the meeting, Leslie explained the inward personal dysphoria of feeling like a male, although a female, to the pastor. Leslie was hoping for pastoral guidance in these difficult moments of life. Instead, the pastor opened the back door to his study and asked Leslie not to return. And Leslie did not return to a church for 18 years. See, on the ground level, this is still about people. Leslie struggles what is referred to in the mental health as a condition known as gender dysphoria. And often with this, there are other mental health concerns that accompany this struggle as well. Psychologist and transgender researcher Dr. Mark Yarhouse writes, Gender dysphoria is the experience of distress associated with the incongruence wherein one's psychological and emotional gender does not match with one's biological sex. Now, this distress, of course, exists on a spectrum from mild to severe. Those who often experience gender dysphoria that rises to the level of an official diagnosis by a mental health professional is really often quite rare. One person that experiences gender dysphoria explains their inner feeling with these words. The person wrote, it's like an electric current through my body that caused my joints to ache, my stomach to turn my hands to shake, and nausea in the most severe moments of dysphoria. Laying in bed at night, it almost felt like the electric circuits in my body didn't quite match up, 
like cramming two wrong pieces of a puzzle together. What an intense feeling. Mr. Walker reminds us as Christians, people who experience distress, anguish, and conflict from their perceived gender identity are not perverts or freaks. It's an unchosen experience. And it is never something that should be just said, get over it. See, no two experiences of gender dysphoria are completely alike. But what is most important to remember is that these are real people. Not everyone who experiences gender dysphoria identifies as transgender because they don't necessarily see it as the most determining aspect of their identity. And as such, we realize that this is a extremely diverse community. One of the lines that I read over and over again in various sources was this. If you know one transgender person, you know one transgender person. Here are a few key uh, additional terms that Dr. Yahars points out in this discussion for us to get our minds wrapped around this community. If you don't remember it all, I understand it can be confusing and hard to get our minds adjusted to thinking in this way. Let me give you a few of those definitions that are used as we talk about this topic. So when the word sex is used, it refers to the physical, biological, and anatomic dimensions of being male and female. It's how a doctor identifies a baby at birth. Gender, on the other hand, has to do with psychological, social, and cultural aspects of being male and female. So then gender identity is how persons think and feel about themselves as male or female. The term transgender is ultimately an umbrella term for the many ways in which people might experience and or present and express their gender identities. Transgender typically refers to a biological female who identifies as a male or vice versa, while non-binary refers to a person who identifies as neither male nor female. And then there are gender roles. Gender roles deal with the ways in which people adopt cultural expectations for maleness and femaleness. A couple more. Misgendering is when you use the wrong word, especially a pronoun that does not reflect the gender identity of the person or dead naming. It's when you use a birth name or other former name of a person that is transgender or non-binary without their expressed consent. Now, in the midst of all of this, there's something else that's going on. Many young teenage girls are being affected disproportionately. These are teenage girls who had shown no previous signs of gender dysphoria, but all of a sudden claim to be transgender, often coming out in groups. What they do have in common, though, of these experiences is that they have transgender friends and large amounts of YouTube along with social media prior to disclosing this new identity. And in light of this recent thing that has come out in the last few years, they had to give it a name. This atypical phenomenon has been given the name rapid onset gender dysphoria. That's what's going on in our culture. 
So what does the Bible teach us about who we are as human beings? What does God's word have to say about us? Well, if you were to start flipping through your Bible looking for a verse on transgenderism, you wouldn't find it because the Bible does not directly address the issue of gender identity not matching with biological sex. There's no specific verse that we can go to to say, hey, see here? It's right here. Look at this. However, what the Bible does do is tell us about who God created us to be and the importance of our biological sex. So let's return to Genesis chapter 1 and look back at the text again and read it, and then we'll share with you some observations. Genesis 1 reads, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth. And over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. And fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. One of the first things that we notice in the text is that God created humans to be his image on earth. Now, it is debated among scholars of exactly what that image entails and what that necessarily means. And there are various thoughts about that in different scenarios. Let me share with you some of the observations that Dr. Sprinkle made in relationship to the gender identity issue as a New Testament scholar with an Old Testament focus on early Judaism as he talks about or shares some of these things with us uh, from this text in light of that, this specific issue. First of all, there's the reality that the word image, when we look at it and how it is used in the rest of the scripture, scriptures, often refers to idols. As you know, an idol is a physical, visible representation of an invisible deity or God. Think back to Greco-Roman times, statues of Zeus or Aphrodite or Poseidon or others. Statues. It's pictures, idols physical representations of a deity that you cannot see. So according to these verses, humans are the true creators, statues of himself on planet Earth. This means that our bodies are significant in being and bearing God's image in the world. The difference between us and the statues of Zeus or Poseidon or others, or Hades for that matter, is that we're living where they are not. And we find out the reason for this is in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. God gave us life by sharing his life with us through his breath. So we're more than just bodies. 
And it's Jesus who leverages this Old Testament understanding for his parable that he tells in Luke 16, 19 through 31 about the rich man and Lazarus. And it's this very idea that Jesus uses to give reassurance to the thief who's on the cross with him at his last moments of life as he's about to give up his last breath. We are bodies, but we're something more. Another key observation that we see about the image of God is that it comes in two biological sex categories of male and female. Notice what the text says. He created them male and female. It does not speak of gender identity or gender role. We know that the Holy Spirit wanted us uh, to think about this in a physical perspective instead of a psychological one because of God's command in verse 28 that the two distinct biological sexes would unite again to reproduce offspring. The same words are used to describe the pair of animals that come in in Noah's ark. You remember how he brought them in, one male, one female, with the purpose that after the flood and all the earth had been washed clean, that they would ultimately reproduce, and thus the world would be populated again. Genesis 1 informs us that our biological sex is indispensable in defining who we are as humans. As we say here at Living Water, men and women equally share the image of God. That brings us to Genesis chapter 2, verses 21 through 22, which adds additional insight for us. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed it up, closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. The word translated in this verse as rib or ribs is mainly translated in the rest of the New Testament as side. We see it in Exodus, we see it in Kings, and we see it in the book of Ezekiel. But what's fascinating about the side, if you look at it in context and how it's used, it most often refers to, in the Old Testament, the side of some sacred object, such as the Ark of the Covenant, the tabernacle, or the temple. And so when we look at this usage of the word throughout the New Testament, there is this correlation between the side of the man and the places that God dwells. It is the idea that man's body in some way, like these other things, is a sacred space. When we come to the New Testament, this is explicitly brought out for Christians in the New Testament by Paul as he reminds the Corinthian believers in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through 20, that their bodies, because of faith in Christ, have become the temples of God because the Holy Spirit has indwelled them. And in light of the fact that their bodies have become the, the sacred temples of God's presence, then they should adjust their moral behavior as a result. 
Listen to Paul's words at the end of these verses, the last two. Paul says, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. If you notice how Paul uses the word you and your bodies, you being the identity of you, he uses it interchangeably with bodies as he does in Romans chapter 6, verse 13 and 16, and then he interchanges it in Romans 12, 1. He does a similar thing. Paul does not separate the embodied you from the real you. To quote Dr. Sprinkle, Paul didn't think that we, <clears throat> that what we do with our bodies is morally neutral. Personhood is a body. We are not souls within bodies, but embodied souls. We can't separate the real you from the embodied you. Or as philosopher and professor Dr. Nancy Piercy wrote, when gender is severed from biology, it becomes something we can choose and therefore something we can change also. For some who struggle with gender dysphoria, in order to bring coherence between their gender identity and their biological sex, on some occasions they choose to resemble the other sex through social changes sometimes, sometimes through hormonal therapy or sometimes through surgical intervention. Despite these changes, they may alter their appearance, sometimes to the point that they, they become indistinguishable from the other sex. It ultimately does not change their biology, only their appearance. I was reminded of this as I read a story about a couple that had a baby together. Most likely, if you were walking on the street and you had run into this couple, you would have thought nothing of it. You wouldn't even have turned to look or caught your eye. You may have made a quick observation if you were walking right in front of them and saw them on the street. You may have noticed that if you knew something about some cultures that, hey, the husband Esteban is, looks like he's Puerto Rican and the wife looks like she's Colombian. But the difference showed up when they decided to have a child, a ultimately a bouncing baby boy. The husband was the one who carried the baby. The couple is a trans couple. The husband is a trans man and the wife is a trans woman. As the doctor stated in the interview, Esteban had to stop the hormonal therapy of testosterone so that bio biology could take back over. And when Esteban stopped, it did. And they have a son to prove it named Ariel. See, our bodies play an essential role, not, though not exhaustive role, in determining who we are, as one writer stated. The Pastor Kyle Eidemann put it well when he stated the implication of this reality. A belief no matter how sincere, if not reflected in reality, isn't a belief, it's a delusion. Paul applied similar argumentation for us as Christians in 1 Corinthians 15 when he said that if Jesus' resurrection is not a historical reality, then no matter how sincere our belief, no matter what experiences we feel, we are delusional. 
There's something else that scripture teaches us, and we see it in both covenants as it relates to this. We find the first one in Deuteronomy chapter 22, which gives us our Old Testament reference as it deals with the prohibition in the Israel at that time against what we might refer to today as cross-dressing. Listen to what Moses wrote. A woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. Now, we want to acknowledge that there are a lot of uh, technical or, let me say, interpretive difficulties when it comes to moving an Old Testament concept into the New Testament world. Does that simply pertain to them? Is it a, is it, does it have lasting value for Christians? How should we interpret it? What things were around it? What things were going on in the text? But in light of all of that, the point is clear, that God intends that the created order of male and female distinctions not be crossed. We see the same thing in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 records the prohibition against men acting like women by taking on the physical intimate role that belongs to women in male-female relationships. Men are not to cross over the boundary line of their biological sex that God established by virtue of their birth. A few chapters later in Corinthians chapter 11, although it also fraught with many difficulties and how to bring it to a modern context about the specifics, still communicates a clear message that the sex differences that God has ordained in the creation or order are to be maintained and for the Christian to be celebrated in the worship service of the church. It's because it's based on what God designed in the beginning in his creation order. Romans chapter 1, verses 26 through 27 bring additional light. I won't cover that text tonight because we'll deal with it in a few weeks. But what we do gather from all these texts is this, that the Bible clearly restricts humans from crossing the lines of their biological sex. Now, the text doesn't necessarily speak directly to gender identity, but what it does instead is upholds the male and female biological distinctions as good and should be respected. See, our biological sex determines what side of the line that we're on in the diamorphic image-bearing of God. Now, some might object to say, but what about Galatians chapter 3 and verse 28? Here's what the scripture says. Let me give you the two surrounding verses for it as well. For as many of you as who were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. 
Nowhere, now, nowhere in Galatians does Paul make the argument that sex differences are to be abolished if you were to search the letter. That would have contradicted what he teaches, of course, as we already read in 1 Corinthians and in Romans. Instead, what Paul's point here is this, that women who had been viewed by some as biologically inferior and socially less valuable than men have an equal standing in the kingdom of God through salvation in Jesus Christ. In light of all the things that I have presented, I would sum it up this way. The Bible's weight seems to be on the side of the objective reality of biological sex being the determining factor as to which side of the two image-bearing choices we fall on, whether that be male or female. Now, what are some potential ways that the church should respond to those who struggle with gender dysphoria or those coming from the trans community? The greatest gift that the church has to offer the world is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That God has loved a rebellious world that is broken and riddled with sin. And yet God sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world to die for our sins. And then God raised him from the dead. In light of this, what God has done, God has communicated that he loves humans, even those who struggle with gender dysphoria and transgender identities. And we need to share this message with others because it is the power of God unto salvation. See, when a person embraces the gospel message and puts their faith in Christ, God not only forgives them of their sins, but he also gives them the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit helps us to see what is really true. The Spirit also gives us new affections like a desire to obey God. And these new affections help us to deal with the other feelings in light of the truth of what God's word says. Now, the Bible does not promise that those who come to faith in Jesus Christ, if they experience gender dysphoria, that God will alleviate that and remove that. He may in some cases or he may choose to, in other cases, help a person's desire to please him, to live in obedience to him grow so that their decision-making process is not based on their dysphoria, but based on their allegiance to him, despite the struggles that they have in their life. Not only do we have the gift of the gospel, the greatest gift that the world could receive, but we also as a church can choose to show compassion and care for those who struggle since God has shown us compassion. Dr. Yarhouse writes in reflecting on the church's responsibility to the community in this way. Christians often react to the deconstruction of sex and gender, and they should offer a reasoned response. That is, here he means retain conviction to it in a spirit of mutual respect and a pastoral heart of compassion. Moreover, Christians can do more than just avoid being culturally reactive. We can be proactive. We can listen to the person who experiences gender dysphoria. We can come alongside them and remain in a sustained relationship even when things are unclear for us 
or when we do not know what to say. As we are in relationship, we can help the person through discipleship, through the discipleship process to think about how living in accordance with their biological sex is a part of following Christ. See, discipleship means we come to know who God says that we are and we seek to live in accordance with who he wants us to become in Christ. And as we're in this process of going through this with them, talking about discipleship, we must remember that the process of sanctification is never an overnight process. If you ever wonder about that, simply think about your own journey. Are there still areas in your life that don't look like Jesus? Another thought to consider when we need, we need to abandon unbiblical cultural stereotypes produced by our culture that create barriers or alienate people. Andrew Walker and his writing on this put it this way. The church has often gotten gender wrong just as society has. Unhelpful stereotypes exist around gender that can confuse individuals if they don't fit into that stereotype. Being a man, for example, doesn't automatically entail loving football. And being a woman does not automatically entail having a love for cooking. I know my wife doesn't. <laughs> when society attaches stereotypes to gender and sex, it can easily send the signal that anyone who fails to conform to those stereotypes is somehow failing to epitomize manhood. A womanhood. And what's interesting is when I compare this or read some other things that there was a correlation when the church does that, it's very similar to the rigid stereotypes that are taught in queer theory. Jonah Mix, a biological male who is a gender norm one who is gender nonconforming, wrote this after spending years in queer theory. It was in those queer circles that I first heard the common admonition to never define a person by their body. If we're not men by our bodies, we are men by our actions. Do you act stereotypically masculine? Then you are man. Do you believe in ways that are stereotypically feminine? You must be a woman. Ironically, queer theory actually reinforces rigid gender stereotypes. By contrast, if you take your identity from your body, you can engage in a range of diverse behaviors without threatening the security of your identity as a man or as a woman. See, when we're defined by our bodies, the whole width of human experience remains open. There is freedom in the body. Remember, as a church, our main goal is for men and women to look more like Jesus, not to conform them to the cultural stereotypes of masculinity or femininity as we might see them. Let me close with this. After Leslie left the church, the LGBT plus community quickly embraced Leslie. In that community, Leslie met, loved, and married a woman named Sue. Sue had a, a rare disease that caused her hands to shake. 
One night, Sue decided to go out for a smoke, I guess at the back of their home of where they lived, and her hands shook so badly because of her condition that on that particular night, she happened to end up lighting herself on fire. Leslie was in the kitchen washing dishes at the time when Sue started screaming. Leslie ran out to find Sue engulfed in flames. After working to put the flames out, Leslie rushed Sue to the hospital. It was too late. The flames had done too much damage. Sue would die three days later. Leslie scrambled to find a church to hold the funeral for Sue. There was really only one church that Leslie knew, the one Leslie volunteered at, but it happened to be very conservative. Leslie fearfully called the church, voice shaking. She said, Hi, my name is Leslie, and my wife just died. We're lesbians, but um, I want to know if you would do my wife's funeral. The pastor responded, we would be honored to. I'm so sorry for your loss. You must be truly grieving right now. I can't imagine what it would be like to lose a loved one. Please, Leslie, let us take care of all of the details of the funeral, the cost, the arrangements, whatever you need. Please, Leslie, let, Leslie, let us love you through your pain. And that's exactly what the church did, loved Leslie through the pain of loss, something that the previous church was unwilling to do. And it was through that experience, through the loss of Sue, through the church loving Leslie, that Leslie would ultimately come back not only to the church, but to faith in Jesus Christ. What's my point? Discipleship to Jesus means that we live by God's design, which does include our biological sex as an essential element of our identity. But it also means that we live as holy, loving, relational image bearers because we live with faith in the Son of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, we have the answer for the world's ills. The question is, will we share it and will we live it? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the truth of your word as we face a world that is coming apart at the seams. And it's so easily, Lord, to circle the wagons, to seek to defend our rights, to be fearful and afraid of what's happening in the culture around us. And in the midst of all that fear, to forget the mission that you have entrusted to us to carry forth your good news to a world that does not know you 
and to exemplify in our lives the way you've treated us and to show to others what it means to live under the rule of God in the world in this present age. Would you help us, Lord? Father, I don't know if there's anyone in this room tonight who has quietly kept this struggle in their life away from others. Lord, I pray that you would help them. And Lord, if one day comes where they find the courage to share it with someone else, that Lord, that person will be receptive and kind and compassion and understanding and come alongside and help. Lord, help us to be a place that holds truth high, that holds your standards up high, but at the same time, help us to be a church that people clearly see that we love them and that we care for them and that we recognize the immense grace we have received in our lives. Let us be a light. Let us be salt. We ask these things in Jesus' holy and precious name.